Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So I heard this illustration from a psychologist and I stole it. For this sermon. He said during a lecture, when I think about what's wrong with the world, if it could be all contained within a single metaphor, I envisioned the worst diner that could possibly exist, the archetypal Hell's Kitchen. You've been to this diner. It's seven o'clock in the morning. You order some bacon and eggs and some toast. And you look around at the diner and it was 1975, when the windows were last washed. There's this thick coating of who gives a damn grease on the walls. The floor, too, has that sort of fermenting stickiness that you really have to work at to develop over the years. The waitress is clearly not happy to be there. The guy behind the counter isn't happy that she happens to be the waitress who's working that day. And when you walk down the stairs to the washroom... Well, that's its own special journey into new viral strains. Uh, You come back, and your order arrives. The plate slams down, and the food shifts around on it. The eggs are overcooked on the bottom. They're kind of brown. But the eggs are also raw on top and cold in the middle. You really have to work to cook an egg like that, but you can master it after 10 years of resentment. And then there's the toast. It's that white, pre-sliced sliced stuff that the birds don't eat, that no one should ever eat. And when you put that in the toaster, you tend to overcook it, and then you scrape off the burnt parts with a knife. And then you wait until it's cold. And then you put on cold margarine, not butter, on top of it. And the margarine is so cold that when you scrape it on the cold bread, it tears holes in it. (laughs) And then you have the potatoes, if that's what you can call them. The diner has clearly kept dumping the customer's uneaten leftover potatoes back onto the griddle for weeks. So three-quarters of the potatoes aren't really potatoes anymore. They've returned to Mother Earth. And then there's the tragedy, the tragedy of really bad bacon. It's the lowest possible quality bacon made from a skinny, angsty pig. And you have to cook the bacon so that it's raw in places and burnt in others. And it has that delightful pig-like odor that only really cheap, badly cooked bacon can provide. And then you serve that. And you serve it with the kind of orange juice that is orange only in color. And that is accompanied by cheap generic coffee from a burner uh, that has clearly gotten cold once or twice and has been reheated throughout the day. And then you serve that coffee with a side of whitener. (laughs) And it's like, here's your breakfast. It's like, no, man, that's not breakfast. That's hell. (laughs) That's hell. I wonder if you can taste the hell in that story, where everything is spoiled, everything is banal, everything is lackluster, everything is beautiless, and the world is a landscape of endless gray. Well, that's a a picture of the comprehensive nature of fallenness. What is fallenness? Fallenness is the world without favor. Fallenness is the world without a break. 
Fallenness is what happens when God says the blessing is withdrawing. And I wonder if you can taste the hell. And, and you've certainly been in situations in your life when the favor has departed, when the glory has departed, and you've inherited some sorts of Zitzenleben, some sort of situation that is overwhelmingly life-destroying and dehumanizing. And there is a cure for that kind of hell. And there's a cure for that kind of diner. And we as believing people, as Christian people, call it salvation. Salvation. And I want to talk about salvation today. I want to communicate to you what salvation is really all about. Because I think it's an overused term in Christianity and at the same time a woefully misunderstood term in Christianity. I think we think we understand it, but it's actually far better than we often imagine. It's far better than we dare even dream. And Paul, in the second chapter of his letter to the church in Ephesus, is trying to help people to understand what it means to be a saved person, what salvation really looks like. And and I want to say that he expresses uh, our pilgrim's progress, or uh, expresses salvation spatially. He sees it in terms of like movement into different realms. He sees it spatially. So he uses these these lovely mythic pictures to help us understand what salvation is all about. So Ephesians 2 takes us to three different places. I don't know if you saw that in the reading, but we're going to different places, different geography, different zip code. Salvation moves us from the underworld uh, up to outer space and then back down to the earth. So we're going to begin in the underworld, then we're shooting up to outer space, and then we're going to land back on planet Earth. But we have to begin in the most unpleasant of realms, the underworld, because Paul begins this particular text in a rather unseemly way, and some would say even an insulting way. Paul is describing humanity as the walking dead. Do you see, here is language. This is verse one. I I would love for you to follow along with me as we work through this passage. Verse one, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, notice he says dead. And in the Greek, Uh, That means dead. Uh, Dead in trespasses and sins. Notice he didn't say sick. He didn't say defeated. He didn't say injured. He didn't say knocked out. He didn't say dizzy. He said dead. And, And what he's saying is that human nature became so morally and spiritually toxic that it killed us all. What he's saying. Dead. And yet, these dead ones, these corpses are, according to Paul, quite lively. Right? Notice all the active language he uses in this passage. He says later, they walk in sin. So evidently, they're strolling around. They follow the world. They're still strolling around. They live in their passion and in their desires. He uses all that living language for these dead people. Because Paul is using the word dead in a very deliberate and focused kind of way. And Paul knew that dead people, dead people do all sorts of things. Dead people go skiing. Dead people watch Jim Gaffigan. 
Dead people like miniature golf. Dead people read slate. Dead people mow their neighbor's lawns. Dead people tell racist jokes and then apologize for telling racist jokes. Uh, dead people eat at bad diners. Dead people do lots of things. They are alive in many ways, nay, in most ways. They're only dead in one very important way, nay, a crucial way. They are dead to God. Or to use Paul's language here, they are children of wrath. It's really interesting. I was uh, listening to a very high-profile religious person who will go nameless who was speaking to uh, various religions, various groups of people, Muslims, uh, religious Jews, Christians, Hindus, and said, we are all children of God, regardless of what we believe. I'm like, I wonder, sir, if you've read the Bible, Um, because the Bible does not say that. The Bible says that at least as we are born under our father, Adam, we are children of wrath. Now, I don't like that, but it is what it says. Uh, And so it's just far better, by the way, when you don't like what scripture says to cope with it, because there's a reason you don't like it. And it probably has more to do with you than the book. Um, And so we are dead to God, meaning there is no living relationship or bond between you and your source. Now, there was a debate in Christianity that's like endlessly long about how stark the human situation is, right? So there are all these people within our tradition that had various voices saying, what is the human condition before God? And I will now summarize them to you in about 40 seconds. Uh, using the illustration of drowning or of being in the ocean. Um, So there was a man in the 4th century named Pelagius. And Pelagius said, this is how Jesus relates to people who are uh, in a bad way in life. The person is in the middle of the ocean, and Jesus is standing on the shore, and he screams to them, you need to swim to me, and then you'll be fine. So it's entirely dependent on the person who's swimming toward Jesus. Then there were followers of Pelagius. So that's not good enough. Human beings aren't that strong. Uh, so the semi-Pelagians came along and said, Jesus is on the shore. You're in the middle of this wild sea. And Jesus swims halfway to you and says, now I've done my part. It's time for you to do yours. And some people didn't believe that that was enough. So in the medieval church, they had another view. They said, well, no, Jesus like sees you suffering and he swims all the way to you. And he puts his arm around you and says, hey there, buddy, like we're going to swim to the shore together. I'm going to do my part, but you have to cooperate with me and do your part. And then if you cooperate enough, I won't drop you. And then I'll take you all the way to the shore. And then others came along like uh, John Wesley, uh, who much of his theology is great. I admire his brothers more, but uh, John Wesley, who comes along and says, that's not enough either. Like Jesus throws you a life ring from the shore and you have a neutral will that can decide whether or not to grab onto that life ring and he'll drag you to the shore. Uh, but but he, his full intention is to save you, uh, but it's up to you to accept it. And then there's like the Anglicans who went along with the Protestants and read this passage from Paul, amongst others, and say, well, the problem isn't that you're, like, struggling in the ocean, splashing around. The problem is that you've already drowned and died, and you sank to the bottom. And Jesus dives in the water, takes out your corpse, and gives you life, breathes life into you. He needs to. 
because you're dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, you don't need help. Christianity is not a religion of help. Christianity is a religion of miracles. It needs to be a miracle. Uh, You know, God isn't giving the Heimlich to people who are choking. He's giving resurrection to the dead. It's better, right? Um, And so that's our situation. We are dead in trespasses and sins, alive in many ways, but dead in that crucial way. And what's more, uh, we, the, the living dead, so to speak, are living within a haunted, deadening realm. Notice that we're not the only problem. We live in a realm that is infected by, influenced by, nay, dominated by, someone, some entity who's called the prince of the power of the air. It's an interesting illustration to describe Satan. That is, he owns everything between people. He owns the atmosphere, the thing that uh, moves and shifts in relationships and in economies and in politics, and he just owns it all. And so it's, it's not just like you bring the crisis or the deadness with you. We live within a deadening, uh, satanically possessed reality. That is Paul's picture. That's Paul's picture. We have two crises then, the crisis within and the crisis without. We are dead men and women who live within a deadening world dominated by decay and uh, darkness. And this is Paul's cosmology, whether we like it or not. This is cosmology. The world is Mordor from Lord of the Rings, of course. The world is Mordor and life is a hellish diner filled with zombies. Right? That's his picture. That's his picture of the underworld in which we uh, live. And he says, therefore, you need a robust salvation. You don't need help. You need a miracle. We need a robust salvation. And so he says, for those in the underworld who have clung to Christ, they have shifted up into outer space. That's my language. Shifted up into outer space. This is verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Raising us up. What does that mean? Well, in order to really know what that means, I'll do 30 seconds of an ancient cosmology. So in the um, ancient framework of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, we see that God creates two realms in the beginning, right? In the beginning, that's Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens were the place of God's ultimate rule, dominion, authority, and his immediacy. The earth was a created, physicalized realm uh, meant for... uh, Various creatures that had princelings ruling over them, that is, human beings. And God was God of both realms, and those, both, those two realms had some overlap. But the earth ended up rebelling, and because of that rebellion, disease and decay and death uh, were engrafted into our experience. The, the heavens, on the other hand, remained untainted, healthy, and lively. And so what happens within the biblical story is someone from the upper untainted realm comes to dwell with those who are in the destroyed realm. That is Jesus Christ, the man of heaven, the God man comes to be with us, descends into the underworld and pitches his tent among us. And so Jesus experiences the vastly different spatial extremes. He experiences the underworld, which, by the way, humiliated and obliterated him. 
And then he was raised physically and tangibly within history and then left recordable history to be lifted into the heavens, the place of his origin. In other words, he was lifted from uh, the deepest, darkest place to the highest possible place. In other words, there was the greatest distance between those two places. And and what's amazing about this Jesus is he wasn't selfish, didn't just do this for himself as an experiment, instead did it for you and, and said, essentially, I don't want you to wither in the underworld. Where I am, there you will be also. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And so the purpose of his life was to bring as many people as possible with him into this new realm to raise us up with him um, the text says and to and to be seated with him he seated us in the heavenly places why is that important you may remember this that the ascension of jesus like 40 days after his resurrection was actually about coronation that moment when his body was usurped or enveloped into the heavens uh, was a time in which god was demonstrating that Jesus the Christ was now the seated monarch of heaven. He was enthroned. That's what monarchs do. They sit on a throne. And that's what Jesus was doing at the ascension. He took his seat at the right hand of power. That's the language of scripture. What's interesting is now we are sharing that seated experience. In other words, right now, all of these Christians that are beleaguered and defeated and just as troubled as you, And me, in Ephesus, Paul is saying, you, you troubled masses, (laughs) you messes that live within the underworld. You know, the truest you is not the you that you think about every day. The truest you, at least how God has situated you, God has citizened you, is seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Yes, that's a head trip. Yes, it's beyond our experience. But it doesn't matter. He's not talking about experience. He's talking about reality before God. And reality before God is that you have a permanent place in a new citizenry, in a new kingdom that is established by a risen Christ. So when he raised up, you raised with him and are seated in outer space, to use my language. Uh, In other words, God gave us a new belonging a new belonging, and therefore the death-inducing world no longer has any claim, any ownership over us at all. We have been purchased by something precious and secured in a precious place. Uh, my favorite scene and my favorite overused sermon illustration is from Les Miserables. Les Miserables. I don't speak French. Um, and the one of the opening scenes, which is just so glorious, and I, it's just worth worth injecting once a year into a sermon, is so you have Jean Valjean, the criminal who uh, somehow awakens the pity of a local diocesan bishop. The bishop takes the criminal in for a night, and then Jean Valjean, the thief, steals the bishop's silver and makes off like a thief in the night. Well, uh, the cops find him. They bring him back to the bishop, and, uh, and the bishop says, Oh, you're sort of dumb. I can't believe that you only took the silverware. I gave you the candlesticks, too. I gave you all the silver I had. Why didn't you take them? essentially imputing righteousness, if you will, to Valjean. And, and Valjean is so shaken by this. And when the cops leave, the bishop looks at this, at this beleaguered, confused, conflicted criminal and says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you now no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul and I give you back to God. Well, that's a picture of what's happening here. Jesus bought you. 
and gives you back to God. And now, regardless of how you feel this morning, you don't really belong here anymore in the world as it is, in the underworld. Salvation means freeing you from all of the tyranny, every element of the tyranny of the underworld. This mode in which we live and die this mode of dehumanizing sin, evil influence, and too many coffins. Uh, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, the former slave owner turned Christian parson, uh, his final words were these, I am still in the land of the dying. I shall soon be in the land of the living. He realized that he belonged somewhere else. And how do we receive this invitation to outer space? How do we receive this salvation? Well, it says in verse 8, these beautiful words, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Just some definitions. What is grace? Grace is like a hybrid. It's a hybrid of unconditional love and forgiveness at the same time. Uh, it's the opposite of cancel culture. You know, cancel culture, you know that? Yeah. So cancel culture, and it doesn't matter like where it's coming from. It comes from all sorts of ideological directions. But it's this idea that a person disagrees with you about something. So they research you, and they see if you've ever said anything damning. And if you had, or if you hadn't, but they could take it out of context and make it look like you did, they'll then take that quote, put it on Twitter, and destroy you publicly out of justice. You get? Yeah, I know. Um, okay, uh, grace is the opposite of that. Grace sees everything, not just what you post, but all the things that you haven't, that you wish you had, uh, or that you really were feeling deep in your heart. And grace says, look, I know. I see it all. And I love you still. And there's, our world is so graceless. I don't even think that there's any more illustrations these days that I could give that would communicate the profundity of that word to you because we live in a graceless age. But God is the king of the graceful age, the age that is broken into this world in Jesus Christ. So it's this hybrid of unconditional positive regard of love and forgiveness at the same time. And, and then there's faith. Faith is the thing that grabs on to the grace and, and says, I trust that. Faith is trust. It's like existential trust. It's, it says that not only are these facts about Jesus, certain facts about his life and resurrection real or genuine, but that they're genuine for me. Genuine for me. So in the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, which was used in the Episcopal Church, they changed the words of distribution to communion. Okay. They changed it from the body of Christ, which was given for you, the blood of Christ, which was shed for you, into the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Now, what is wrong in the 1979 form of distribution of the elements? Nothing. There's nothing wrong in saying that communion is the bread of heaven. That comes from John 6. Uh, and the cup of salvation comes from the Psalms. It's beautiful. There was only one problem with it, and that is it took away the for you. It, took, it was very deliberate. It took away the for you, the body of Christ given for you. Because what we want you to know in this church is the gospel is for you. It's, it's not just an idea without any connection to your crisis. It happened for your crisis. It happened for you, right? Yeah. And so the, faith is trust that it's, it's true for me. Or to quote John Wesley, to give him positive press, John Wesley said, the gospel is for me, yes, even me. It's beautiful. 
Uh, and, and he also goes on, just so we get the point, he says, it's not by works. I love that. Not by works. He doesn't say works of the law. He says any works. It's not through taming your appetites. It's not through having a, a developing intelligence. It's not through your psychological, you know, satisfaction or, or calming. It's not through avoiding cocaine. It's not from having better habits. You know, all of those things are great, but I'm not knocking them at all. I, like, I would prefer if you didn't have a really robust cocaine habit. I think it would be good for you. Just saying. Like, they're all great for the earth, but they can't reconcile you with the outer space. They can't reconcile you with heaven. Because the damage is so deep, it's even in your good works. So there's no escape. You need some sort of whole scale, full-scale rescue and resurrection. And that's what's offered in Jesus, um, who has seated us in these outer space places. And what's beautiful, do you see what he did? He seated us there before we made any modifications. If this, this is what it says in verse 3, right? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in trespasses. This is God saying, I love your corpse. I love your dead form. Before you can do anything, while you're just laying there. But what can a corpse do? Somebody who's dead in trespasses and sins. You can't even roll around. You can't even churn in your urn. You're too dead. And God says, that's the one I want. That one, right there. And that's the one I'm going to give new life to. Yeah. So, he loved us when we had no potential when we had nothing going. He didn't need us to be lovely before he loved us. So that's the first word, down to the underworld. Second word, up to outer space. And third world, back to planet Earth. Back to planet Earth. This is verse 10. For we as we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love this. I think Paul must have known that Jesus had a, a, an earlier career as a craftsman because he likens Jesus to a craftsman here. He said that we are his workmanship. Uh, and, and then he says that we were created in Christ Jesus. That's Genesis language. That's like back to the garden language. That's like image of God language that we were created in Christ Jesus. Uh, in other words, the image of God that was within you that was shattered. It's still there, but shattered in the fall can come back together and become gorgeous again. Um, and, and there's a contrast here in the language of walking. He began this passage in the underworld talking about walking in sin like a living dead man, like a zombie. But now we walk in something different, he says. We walk in good works. I love this because he's so sophisticated. Paul doesn't diss good works. He just doesn't, he just doesn't think that they can help reconcile you. They can't solve your situation with God, and God is not impressed by them. However, you were created to be a veritable fountain of beautification. That you were created with a voice. You were created with energy. You were created with a dynamic that is only yours. And you bring that into the world. And you can cause it to flourish. So that it reminds people that there was in fact an Eden that was lost. And you can give somebody a preview of a resurrection that is to come. So when you are good, if I can put it this way. When you are good from a freed up soul that's loved into loveliness and life, you actually have eschatological power in the present to give people a prophetic witness to what God has in store for the whole world. In other words, you can lift the whole world out of hell by a few centimeters. And that's not nothing. 
So what I'm telling you today is when it comes to your works and, and what you have to offer the world, and Martin Luther put it this way, he said, go and plant a tree in the garden of hope, meaning you have something to offer that is beautifying to the world. So when it comes to vocation, here's what I'm just going to tell you. I don't care how much money you make. I'm, it's so boring to me. Um, just find something you love to do. And if it's not like shooting nuns, or like if it's not sin, just do that. Pour out your energy for it. Why not? What have you got to lose? It's not saving you. You've already been saved. So who cares? Try something. Figure it out. It might work. It might not. Eh, what are you going to do? Can't control some of those elements. Um, but you can offer the world a mythic prophecy of grandness to come. So that's some things about salvation, friends. What I'm saying to you, if I could like summarize it from the, the Pilgrim's Progress of down into the underworld, up into outer space, back to planet Earth, is this. Salvation doesn't merely entail the pardon of our sins. So that's the heart of it. It's even grander. It's bigger. It means a full-scale escape from all of the tyranny, every element of it, of the underworld. Salvation means that you're no longer a passive pawn in a satanic game of chess doomed to be controlled by the darkest possible forces until you're annihilated. Salvation means that God is now, even now in this moment, rejuvenating you as someone who can love what he loves. And lastly, salvation means that cancer or an aneurysm or heart failure won't ultimately bring you to ruination because your truest self is already seated. You're already seated with a sitting, stirring, reigning Christ. To return to the diner image from before, that diner that expresses a world filled with death, salvation sobers us by telling us that we're eating poisoned food and we don't have to eat it. Salvation then takes us by the hand out of the diner. Salvation then begins to detoxify us from the food that we have eaten so that we feel better. And lastly, and happily, salvation takes some gasoline and a match and burns down the diner so that no one ever has to eat that food again. Therefore, salvation, when it comes to you and the rest of the cosmos, has a past, a present, and a future. We are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. It's a little way of speaking about justification, sanctification, and glorification, if you're feeling particularly theological. <laughs> well, that's the pilgrim's progress of salvation. That's our pilgrimage, and that is the unseemly grace that our society doesn't believe in anymore. That's the unseemly grace that secures its enterprise, that makes it happen. So here's my only applicatory word for us today. You know, today is Laetere Sunday. It's the fourth Sunday within Lent. Laetere means rejoice. Now, rejoicing doesn't seem to really fit within the Lenten milieu. It doesn't. Um, but it worked its way into Lent a long, long time ago because Lent is so thematically heavy that the architects of these seasons thought, you know, people need a bit of a break. And they're right, because Lent has lasted over a year now. We need a break. We need a break. You need a break today. So I want you to relax a little bit today. I want you to relax a little bit. You know, if you're of age, have a little wine, uh, because you're so stressed. We live in Grove City, Pennsylvania. We're all like type A nightmares. We're so stressed. I'm not projecting uh, over managers, overly critical of the self, overly critical of the world. How about you just give it a rest, just for a little bit, right? Because You can relax, because salvation is a work of God. Like maybe some things are just God's business. Maybe he actually can do something after all. After all, we have a God who does not try. He actually does things. 
You know, because only God can do this work. Only God is the author of life and the author of resurrection. Only a risen Christ can raise the dead. The dead have limited options. So our contribution to salvation, at least whilst citizens in the underworld, was very simple. Two boards and three nails. That's all we offered. God did the rest. Um, so I have a, a friend, um, and uh, she's, she's in ministry, and, uh, and she grew up Jewish. But her, her dad, when she was five years old, became her hero because she really believed that uh, in her closet lived a witch. And the witch, in the middle of the night, became very scary and would make sounds and would be very creepy. And the father, night after night, would come in to comfort her and say, everything's okay, babe, just go back to sleep. There's no witch, there's no witch. Well, that didn't work, and she kept waking up uh, night after night until the father said, I'll handle it. So the father rips open the closet door and then slams it shut behind him and starts screaming and yelling and tearing fabric and going crazy and for about three minutes and then comes out of the, the little closet and closes the door and looks at my friend, wipes his brow, and says to her with great confidence, she has been handled. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like a glimpse of salvation. It's a glimpse of salvation, she said. Yeah. Somebody beat back the darkness. For you. For you. So friends, just today, you can chill. It's been handled. It is being handled. And it will be handled once and for all. So don't take your sins more seriously than the Christ who bore them. He will have his way. That is the only certainty in life. He will have his way. Jesus entered our haunting darkness, slayed the witch, and burnt down her diner. And you are saved. And the kingdom of God does not serve bad bacon. Amen. We at last, they took your life. They could not take your